Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast material, the episodes themselves, the show notes, the descriptions, and some resources that I link to or identify on an episode-by-episode basis can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I also have some good stuff on my blog which I've been writing in for over two years now, and that's called cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. In today's episode, which I've titled Federal Judges Are Human Too, I want to take a look at some of the invisible biases that I think underpin some of these antitrust cases, particularly the ones filed by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And in our last episode, I identified five cases that I was going to use really to illustrate some of the antitrust principles and how they apply to big-time college sports and what they say about the future of college sports. And the three athlete-initiated cases that I used, this California trilogy, White, O'Bannon, and Austin, and those cases, you know, they represent the high watermark for athletes because the Ninth Circuit has been more progressive than any other circuit that's looked at some of these athlete issues. And by selecting those three cases, uh, I really wanted to focus on the evolution of the cases that have taken us to the U.S. Supreme Court. But I, I want to be clear, there are a handful of, of important antitrust cases in other circuits that just showed blind deference to the NCAA. And there were a couple out of the Seventh Circuit, and the Seventh Circuit's important because Amy Coney Barrett's from the Seventh Circuit. The NCAA is located in the Seventh Circuit, and the Seventh Circuit's very conservative and some very favorable decisions to the NCAA and to its institutional interests have come out of the Seventh Circuit. And as I've discussed in other episodes and as I've written in my blog, I think that that influence with with Coney Barrett replacing Justice Ginsburg is going to be important in how the court looks at this case. And and it remains to be seen what kind of influence Coney Barrett's going to have. But in these Seventh Circuit decisions, there are two that the NCAA has relied on. One is called Agnew versus NCAA. The other is called Depi versus NCAA. Agnew involved a challenge to the NCAA's scholarship limits in football. And Depi involved a challenge to the NCAA's transfer rules, both quote-unquote eligibility rules. But in both of those cases, the Seventh Circuit just kind of barred the gate. They just put slammed the gate down and told the athletes, you, you can't come in because these are amateurism-based eligibility rules. And we're simply going to defer to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism and defer to, to them as the sole regulatory authority on amateurism issues. And that's really been the rule rather than the exception. These Ninth Circuit cases are kind of outliers among the mosaic of federal antitrust cases filed by, by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. So where does this blind deference come from? What, what's the normative source of that deference? And I think it's really important to look at this because when the oral argument in the Supreme Court occurs in Austin on March 31st, 
one of the things I'm really going to be listening for is the extent to which some of these invisible values-based dynamics play out in the justices' uh, thinking and, and, and the questions that they ask. And some of this is very, very subtle. And to tease it out, I'm going to go back to O'Bannon and Austin and the way that the Ninth Circuit handled its legal analysis in O'Bannon, and then how the district court judge in Austin framed the issues uh, in response to the athletes' claims that the market should just be opened wide up and that the athletes should be able to compete freely for the value of their services. And that's really crucial here because a lot of these normative values are so deeply rooted and they're invisible and this has been one of the most difficult things to tease out in this whole in my whole work uh, with the blog and, and the podcast and this critical examination of the business of big-time college sports. And I wrote a blog post back, gosh, I think this was probably uh, late 2019, maybe early 2020. And I titled it, The NCAA is Winning the litigation war. And I talked about this in the last episode, and I've talked about it in other episodes, but one of the grand myths about this antitrust litigation and this quote-unquote athletes' rights antitrust litigation is that the actual outcome for the athletes in these California cases really hasn't moved the needle very much in terms of practical outcomes that really change the relationship between the athletes and the system, both the universities uh, and the conferences and the NCAA. And I identified a few of the key normative principles that I think have driven some of this judicial deference to the NCAA and to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. And if you were to do a scouting report on the decision makers in the federal judiciary, you're going to see some patterns, some consistencies. They are almost exclusively white. Most of them are by the time they reach the federal bench, particularly the circuit court bench, they are seasoned. They've been around for a while. They've proven their chops. They're all exceptionally talented jurists, just brilliant people. I mean, this is the cream of the cream in the when you get to the federal judiciary at the district court level, then even more so at the uh, circuit court level. And of course, at the Supreme Court level, you're at the very top of the food chain. So you have this exceptionally gifted and talented legal minds looking at these issues and and they're processing them. I mean, so Judge Wilkin, for example, in the O'Bannon and the Austin cases, she is a, an, a specialist in antitrust law and class action antitrust law. And those cases are extraordinarily complicated. Procedurally, they're almost impossible to understand. But she understands all that stuff and kind of can cut through the, the fluff. But one of the downsides of that demographic is that most of those people probably aren't in at a sports bar during March Madness taking in every game they can and placing bets and or talking to the person at the bar stool next to them about Gonzaga's shot selection or Michigan's transition defense. These are people who really are complete outsiders to the sports world generally, and they really don't have a nuanced understanding of the relationship of all the moving parts in big-time college sports. And, you know, it was funny, in the O'Bannon suit early on, when Judge Wilkin was just trying to learn the lingo, she 
confused the SEC, the Southeastern Conference, with the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. And it was kind of charming, you know, those those footfalls early on, and came to understand the business model at a pretty sophisticated level. But her baseline, I think, was one that made her susceptible to some of the deeply embedded values of big-time college sports that the NCAA has been propagandizing for decades. And when you look at how Judge Wilkin managed those cases, and you know, I read all the trial transcripts and the rulings and opinions that Judge Wilkin issued in that case. And you really see an interesting evolution. I kind of call it the the education of, of Claudia Wilkin. And she came to understand at an intuitive level that the NCAA was nothing that it had presented itself to the public. And they, they really were not acting consistent with the values they claimed to hold. And, and that w- was clear. And she wasn't, she's also no BS kind of judge. She wants to manage these cases and get through them. And she didn't want the NCAA, or, or quite frankly, the athletes bringing in all these star witnesses. She wanted to hear from the experts. She wanted to rule within the four corners of the issues that are relevant in an antitrust case. And I believe she wanted to do the right thing within the limitations of that uh, discretion and decision-making and that uh, analytical framework. But at the same time, after completely eviscerating the NCAA's evidence on amateurism as a pro-competitive justification for its compensation limits, I mean, she just, she she spent uh, several years drinking all this stuff in, and then she just sliced and diced it and concluded that the NCAA couldn't even offer an intelligent definition of amateurism, much less uh, be in a position to rely on amateurism as a slam dunk defense to its obviously anti-competitive compensation limits. After going through all of that, she comes right up to the edge of doing what everybody thought might happen in O'Bannon, and that was just to blow the doors on amateurism. But then she stopped short. She blinked. And so did the Ninth Circuit. When the Ninth Circuit took that case, you know, Judge Wilkin had offered these $5,000 a year per revenue-producing athlete trust funds as no compensation. Ninth Circuit said, no, mm-mm, we're, we're going to go with amateurism here. And amateurism is relevant in this analysis because we're not going to be the ones to blow the doors on amateurism and completely turn the business model of big-time college sports on its head. And I think that underlying unspoken deference to the institutional interests that the NCAA has been promoting and marketing and propagandizing for decades now had a real impact on these judges. And the other thing that that has had a real impact on these judges is that the NCAA is not coming into these uh, antitrust suits, these athlete-filed antitrust suits, with the good old boys from Indianapolis as their legal counsel. They're hiring the most prestigious, powerful law firms and lawyers on the planet to defend their interest in these suits. And and I think that makes a difference. You know, people want to believe that it doesn't, but it does. And the NCAA uh, has acknowledged that. I'm going to talk about that in, in, in just a minute. But I want to try to sort of categorize the these principles, these deference principles that are built into some of the judicial thinking in these cases. 
And I think there are really six of them. So what I'm going to do is just identify all six. And then I'm going to go back and take each one and just say a few things about them and, and why they're so important and how I think the Supreme Court justices may be looking at this case in, in ways that may, may be invisible to them. These are intu- Some of these are intuitive, normative undercurrents. So the first one is a sense of benevolent paternalism in how they look at these athlete-initiated lawsuits. Then the second is the allure, the kind of the classic, charming Norman Rockwell chariots of fire allure of adhering to venerable traditions. And then three, there's the deference to the judgments and choices of values-based voluntary associations. And that that's important. Fourth, there's this Fear of un- unintended consequences, and, and that comes through loud and clear, explicitly, actually, in some of Judge Wilkins' observations in her rulings. Let's see. Five, you have intense public relations relations campaigns for the preservation of the status quo that the NCAA has been pursuing for decades, and even for non-sports fans, people who really don't pay that close attention. You have to be living in a bubble to not be assaulted by the March Madness tournament or the or the college football playoff. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And there's this, this sense that it's important. It's really important that it's an American cultural uh, institution and, and there, there must be something there worth protecting. And then sixth, you have endorsements of these status quo principles and these uh, NCAA Power Five institutional interests by credible public figures. And that goes both to the attorneys who are representing the interests of the NCAA and the Power Five, and then this big universe of celebrities and public figures and politicians and impressive public servants. Uh, Robert Gates, uh, former Secretary of Defense, is on the NCAA Board of Governors as one one of its quote-unquote independent members. They're not, not so independent. But Condoleezza Rice, uh, former Secretary of State, who was head of the Commission on College Basketball, which was created by the NCAA, was mostly uh, made up of NCAA insiders or or true believers. But you have these incredibly accomplished, well-respected, authoritative voices speaking out in favor of the institutional interests of the NCAA and Power Five and the status quo in college sports. And that that makes a difference. That's why the NCAA has brought these people into the fold. And if you're a judge who knows very little about the entire enterprise and you're trying to figure out at a kind of a visceral, intuitive level whether the NCAA is a good guy or a bad guy, there's a decent chance that they're influenced at some level, whether it's conscious or not, by the associations that the NCAA and Power Five have with all of these well-respected pitchmen. They're essentially pitchmen and women. And, you know, I kind of look back to uh, this big tobacco analogy. And, you know, back in the day, Willie Mays was hawking uh, cigarettes. And there were people who I, I think looked at that and said, wait a minute, gosh, this guy, wow, he's he's a famous athlete. If, if he thinks smoking's okay, then smoking's okay for me. And you have that same kind of dynamic here with these powerful people. They're just going to be influenced by it. That's the whole purpose of having those people taking up your cause. That's the whole purpose of having them as uh, spokespeople and essentially endorsers of your business interests. And I think it's a very powerful dynamic, and I think that federal judges are not immune from that, just as they're not immune from having 
Seth Waxman walk in to represent the NCAA or having Skadden Arps doing their antitrust work or having Wilkinson Steckloff come in and join the team representing the NCAA. And I'll talk a little bit more about the legal dream team the NCAA has put together in these antitrust suits. Okay, so let's just look at these six issues one by one. And the first I identified was this sense of benevolent paternalism. And I think that expresses itself in the difference between the way that the federal judiciary has handled, say, Board of Regents, which was a business-to-business issue, and then law, which was the assistant coach compensation limit. And those were really adult interests. And then how they handled these uh, athlete-initiated lawsuits. And I see a clear difference. And, you know, I I talked about law as an adult case, and I did not mean to suggest that the athletes aren't adults. They are, most of them are adults, and they have the same legal rights as any other American. And even if they weren't adults, they still have protectable legal rights, and it doesn't diminish their value to the NCAA economically. But I think that there is this invisible sense that when we're talking about the interests and the rights of the athletes, that the adults in the room, you know, and these are seasoned adults, you know, again, these federal judges um, are well into their careers uh, and they're overwhelmingly white and they have a kind of a conservative view of the world, lowercase c, regardless of their party affiliation or what president appointed them. And I, I sense in these decisions involving the athletes, that there's sort of this undercurrent of subordinating the rights and interests of these mere kids, students, student athletes, to the adult interests and the corporate interests and the big boy and girl interests of the institutional stakeholders. And I think that's a very powerful dynamic. And I think that makes the decision makers in the Uh, federal judiciary, susceptible to some of the false narratives that the NCAA paints regarding how lucky these athletes are to be able to participate in intercollegiate athletics. And they get all these benefits and the full scholarship and the degree that's worth a million dollars. And for these high value athletes, there's also this undercurrent of, well, yeah, well, they, they may not make any money now. And heck, who knows, maybe we're exploiting them a little bit. But those guys are going to go on to make a bunch of money as as pros. So don't worry about what we're doing now. We're we're trying to uphold the integrity of, you know, college sports and the integrity of the student athlete and the educational and all this propaganda. But I think that it's very easy to kind of get drawn into that when you're looking at the interests of kids versus adults and and, and that I think is a very powerful undercurrent. And then second, we have this Allure, I think, draws federal judges to these venerable institutions and these quintessentially American cultural phenomenons and cultural values that the NCAA and the Power Five have been so good at monetizing over the years. And so there's a dovetail there of of the interests and the susceptibilities. And I think a lot of that comes through in the way that this Board of Regents dicta has been romanticized. And you have to remember that Justice Byron White was on the court that decided Board of Regents. And he was an exceptional 
uh, human being on so many levels, just a brilliant jurist. But he was also one of the best football players in college sports uh, in the 1930s and was known as Wizard White. And then he went on to play professionally. He was a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, the guy is the guy is just an amazing story and really kind of the ideal. He's kind of like Red Grange. I talked about Red Grange in episode two. And so you have Wizard White who has this Red Grange-like aura. But those two guys are, are just so outside the box and are so extraordinary on so many levels that, you know, appealing to the sensibilities that they inspire really kind of takes you outside of your intellectual thinking and into your emotional thinking. And I'm guessing you're going to hear a lot about Justice White at the oral argument on March 31st. His name has come up in the congressional hearings, and he, he dissented in Board of Regents. And he saw the, I think, he saw the future post-Board of Regents and this explosion of commercialization and professionalization. And he had lived it. And he did not like to be called Wizard White. He didn't want that to be his identity, not his football identity. That, that was not who he was. And he was a very modest, kind of humble guy. And he really believed in the this notion of putting academics above athletics and the primacy of the intellectual mission of the university. And he lived it. You know, he was the real deal. But he is the extreme outlier. And his perspective is dated. It's simply dated. But but you're going to see this romanticized view of the student athlete running through Justice White. And don't be surprised to hear the NCAA's lawyers quoting Justice White and trying to inspire that sense of venerable tradition and the honor and integrity of the student athlete and the amateurism and the collegiate model and all of those things because it works. <laughs> because justice is are human too and they they love a story like Byron White and Wizard White. I mean what's not to love about that story? So you have that as sort of this invisible force that the NCAA has capitalized on at a very sophisticated and subtle level. And in a related vein is this third thing uh, that I define as deference to the judgments and choices of values-based voluntary associations. So remember, you know, the NCAA is pitching itself as just a garden variety, nonprofit, just trying to do the right thing by its educational mission. And, and again, the NCAA operates as an educational nonprofit. They hang their nonprofit hat on the peg of education. And this whole notion of the student athlete and the primacy of academics and all this propaganda that the NCAA has sold for, for decades really kind of slides into this deference to the judgments and choices of voluntary associations. And this also ties into really the end game for the NCAA here. And we're going to talk uh, a little bit more about, about this in the next episode because I really want to tease out how the NCAA has framed its request for antitrust immunity in uh, O'Bannon and Austin. But what they're saying is, you know, we're a voluntary association. We're the experts on amateurism. We're the only organization that can uh, effectively regulate college sports. And we don't want Congress doing it. We don't want federal courts doing it. We don't want state legislatures doing it. So th this deference to the, to, you know, voluntary associations is really at the heart of the NCAA and Power Five's request and quest for antitrust immunity. So we'll talk more, more about that 
in the next episode. And then fourth, and this is really important, I think this is this has probably influenced the district court judges and the circuit court judges uh, more than maybe any other influence. And that is the fear of unintended consequences. And Judge Wilkin, in her opinion in Austin, and it was like a 108-page opinion, and and she really dissected the NCAA's amateurism arguments and just kind of, you know, kicked them to the curb. And of course, again, in, in Austin, she was bound by this O'Bannon Ninth Circuit decision, which took off the table the possibility of an open market for athlete services. But when she was talking about the remedy that she fashioned and talking about the athlete's claims that that she should just open the market to, for the full value of the athlete's services. And in support of that argument, the athlete's experts had said, you know, wait a minute here. Let, let, let's look at this with a clear head and objectively. And their argument was that the market participants, including the NCAA, including the Power Five, including all these institutional interests that were benefiting from the status quo, had a market incentive not to engage in behavior that was going to decrease consumer demand. Because the the, the touchstone analysis in all of this is uh, consumer welfare, consumer demand. And we're going to talk about that in a separate episode as well. But, but all of all roads in this antitrust analysis kind of lead back to that fundamental po- uh, point of what's in the best interest of the consumers and what's in the best interests of free markets. And they were saying, you know, that from a consumer interest, consumer demand, consumer behavior standpoint, that there was a disincentive for the NCAA or Power Five to engage in market behavior, like paying athletes too much money, if, if that's going to decrease demand. And that was the NCAA's argument that there was this uh, consumer preference for amateurism and that paying players is going to kill the product. And that's, you know, within the four corners of the economic analysis and putting aside the, the normative values-based uh, arguments they made about amateurism. But they were saying, the experts were saying that the market's going to efficiently tease this out. So don't be afraid to let the market work its magic. In response to that, Judge Wilkins said, quote, the inevitable trial and error phase could result in miscalculation by one or more conferences as to levels of cash pay that could reduce the consumer demand for the product. And this could produce unintended consequences. It is hoped that gradual change will be instructive. And and I think that's really a a telling quote. Judge Wilkin was just saying she, she wants to take it slow here and let's just see what happens and we're moving in baby steps. And I think part of that is this response to the the weight of the entire enterprise that the NCAA and Power Five kind of brought down on her. And they've identified her in their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court as kind of this single judge who has gone out on her own to try to up to, uh, upend the, the sacred principles of amateurism and all this stuff. They've really kind of tried to isolate her in a really inappropriate way, in my judgment. But when you really look at her rulings, they're very conservative. And this quote is a perfect example of that. And I think part of what she was saying is, look, I'm with you. I, I understand the arguments. I understand the injustice. I understand that the NCAA is not, not a good actor. But I don't want to be the one who has the first sentence of their judicial bio to read. This is the judge that uh, ruined college sports as we know them for everybody. And then we have this fifth influence that's kind of sitting beneath these antitrust cases. And that's the intense public relations campaigns for the preservation of the status quo. And this brings in some of the other factors. But you can't underestimate the kind of hidden value, the the subconscious effect 
of the NCAA's relentless commercial campaign to convince the entire world that they are the knights in shining armor riding in on the white horse to preserve this sacred institution, this sacred American institution of amateurism and the student-athlete and the collegiate model and all that stuff. And watching this year's March Madness tournament is a testament to that. Uh, And I don't want to get on a rant here. I'm going to save this for some other episodes. But this NCAA tournament, is it's almost impossible for me to watch on so many levels. But the NCAA and CBS and Turner and all their corporate enterprises, AT&T, Capital One, you know, all these commercial interests that are making billions off of these kids, they are literally shoving this year's March Madness tournament down the throats of consumers, and they are shamelessly trying to bolster their credibility and try to get everybody to think everything's okay and everything's normal and everything's not okay. It's not normal. And as a as a basketball person, watching this spectacle and watching these people trade down on the game the way that they're doing is disgusting to me. I can't watch it. I just can't. I can't watch it. it it's unwatchable. And Their goal is simply to get through the tournament, get to the payday, keep the gravy train going, and they are using this opportunity to try to market themselves through what I think is is going to be a catastrophic uh, tournament when it's reviewed in in hindsight and kind of reverse engineered. And there's so many aspects to that. Some have played out in the media, but for the most part, the sports media has been pretty compliant as they always are because they are making money from all this too. So I think you know all, the NCAA is making all these arguments about well, you know, ch- chipping away at amateurism is is chipping away at American values and uh, this incredibly important institution that big-time college sports has become. And they have been saying, oh, you know, we're under existential threat, we're the victim, and we have all this besieging and frivolous litigation that's coming at us and all this stuff. But there's nothing that's happening in the courtroom. There's nothing that's been happening in Congress or in these state legislatures that could do more harm to the game of basketball and the institution of American basketball than what the NCAA the Power Five, CBS and Turner, and all their corporate interests are doing right now through this NCAA basketball tournament that's making a mockery of the game. And so on the backside of this, when we're writing the obituary for big-time college sports, it's not going to be these antitrust suits or the or the kids who stood up and said, you know, I'm going to fight. It's going to be the NCAA's greed, their incompetence, and their arrogance that's going to be the cause of death. Okay, so that was a little bit of a rant. I'll try to keep myself in check here. And then let's talk about this very last thing and the endorsements of the status quo by credible public figures. And that that ties into, um, you know, this whole marketing approach that the NCAA has to the big time college sports business model. And, you know, I talked a little bit about it with uh, Dr. Rice. And, um, you know, there's a laundry list of really impressive people that the NCAA sort of has on call to come to the rescue when uh, they're taking a hit from a public relations standpoint. They've been very good at that. But I think, I believe, one of my hidden hopes in all this work is that one of these heavy-hitting 
credible, authoritative public figures is going to come out and just say, this is a fraud. What the NCAA has been doing is a fraud. I was brought in to try to help, and I came in in good faith and put my name and authority and reputation behind the NCAA's representation of their interests to me and what they were trying to accomplish here. And what they're actually doing has zero to do with the values they claim to hold. They are bad actors, they're acting in bad faith, and they only care about their money and their power. This has nothing to do with education, this has nothing to do with amateurism, this has nothing to do with the collegiate model. This has nothing to do with anything except a bunch of rich, white corporate interests making obscene money off of the labors of a labor force comprised largely of African-American men. That's it. And all this marketing and this uh, camouflage that uh, CBS and Turner use to disguise the, the whiteness of the interests that, that sit behind the public presentation, I, I hope that gets exposed to. Um, so, you know, you turn on uh, March Madness now and, and you get Clark Kellogg, you get Charles Barkley, you get Kenny Smith, you get Grant Hill, you uh, listen through a commercial, you get uh, Samuel L. Jackson, you get Spike Lee and uh, Reggie Miller and on and on and on. And, you know, that's, that's a false facade. Because what those what isn't listed, you know, that on some of these uh, sports commentators, they give their resume. I want to see as part of that resume how much they're getting paid by CBS, how much they're getting paid by Capital One, how much they're getting paid by Wendy's or Buffalo Wild Wings and all that. And then we'll kind of know their real relationship is to this public facade that the NCAA is putting on this product that is a false facade to the extent that it suggests that black America is okay with the business model. You know, there's this, again, kind of using this uh, celebrity influence and the public presentation to create an impression about the business model that simply doesn't exist. And, you know, there's this tacit endorsement of the entire enterprise when black athletes and, and black spokespeople and black cultural icons are involved on the business side and create the appearance that everything must be okay because I'm on board with this. I don't know whether they're on board with it or not. It'll be interesting to know. But, uh, you know, you have to know when you look at these contracts, the, the, the parts that have actually been made available in these lawsuits, and, and for the most part, they've been redacted out. But you do see that in some of the NCAA's statements regarding its relationship with its corporate sponsors is that they're required to buy into the party line. I mean, that's a condition of doing business with the NCAA. And they're not going to align themselves with any corporate interest, with any personality, with any spokesperson who isn't spouting their party line because that's what they get paid to do. <laughs> that's what they're paying them to do. So, you know, what, what you're getting in this whole packaging is simply an illusion. And, and I wonder, you know, I'm just, I've, I've thought to myself as we're heading into this oral argument in Austin, whether any of the Supreme Court justices are tuning into the March Madness tournament and what do they see? You know, if you're Justice Sotomayor or you're Justice Roberts or Justice Alito, and, and you turn into this, tune into this stuff, and or, or, or Justice Kagan. I, I would just love to have a conversation with any of those people after they tune into the March Madness tournament to know kind of what they took in, what they processed, what were the visceral, visceral impressions that they took in. And that would be really interesting to know. But maybe they're doing that. They may, you know, as this case is coming up, they're like, what the heck is this? Because I'm guessing a lot of them really don't understand the business model, uh, just as Judge Wilkin did, didn't. And they haven't had 10 years 
to wade through the NCAA's BS. So what's what's the impression? You know, what are the, what's the takeaway? And my guess is that they're going to be kind of blinded by some of the NCAA bling and the front people that they put out to create a false impression about the true business model and the true beneficiaries in the business model. And, you know, that could have an effect on how they view the entire case. And the NCAA knows that. And on that last point about the credibility of the people that the NCAA associates with to advance its interest, I want to talk a little bit more about who is representing the NCAA in these antitrust suits. And, you know, when we were talking about the perfect storm in the first episode, one of the points that I made is that NCAA beginning in 2006 with this wave of antitrust suits, and then you had the state name, image, and likeness laws, and then you had, you know, some other issues playing out in the perfect storm that kind of exposed the NCAA's motives. But as that was playing out, you saw the NCAA moving its operations, its its kind of institutional interest operations to Washington, D.C. And in 2014, they hired this big-time uh, lobbying firm, and Brownstein Hyatt, and they associated in the Abandon case some really heavy-hitting, powerful attorneys. So I just want to talk about them briefly right now because they're all the most important ones. The ones who are going to be influencing what happens in this appeal and in this Supreme Court argument are ultimate D.C. insiders. So first, let's start with the bread and butter of the NCAA's legal team, and that is Skadden Arps, which is one of the most powerful law firms in the world. It's one of the largest law firms in the world, and it is the gold standard in antitrust legal representation. So Every heavy-hitting corporation that has an antitrust issue wants Skadden Arps on the team. I mean, they're, they're kind of the Michael Jordan of antitrust law, and they're big, and they're powerful. And when Skadden Arps walks into the courtroom, they have instant credibility, okay? They're based in New York, but they are all over the world. And the NCAA has had a relationship with them for years and years, maybe decades. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how far back it goes. But they've been part of this long-term strategy to sort of navigate these antitrust cases and the antitrust issues, to bring the issues to the very place that they are right now. This is, the, this is kind of the holy grail of the NCAA's antitrust quest for antitrust immunity. And Skadden Arps has been a big part of that. They've also retained the law firm Wilmer Hale. And they, Wilmer Hale, I think, has been working for the NCAA since O'Bannon. And so that goes back probably a decade, maybe more. I'm not sure if they did any work before that. But Wilmer Hale is D.C.-based, and it is one of these firms that has enormous political influence because a lot of former heavy hitters in uh, the federal government come into work at Wilmer Hale when they when they finish up. So I would argue that it's one of the most politically influential law firms in the in DC and their primary appellate counsel is a guy named Seth Waxman. Seth Waxman, um, that name may be familiar because he was President Clinton's solicitor general and the solicitor general is a legal position and the primary responsibility of the Solicitor General in, a, in our federal government uh, structure, and it's a, st a statutory office. But uh, the Solicitor General is responsible for representing the United States of America whenever it makes an appearance in a lawsuit. And they are there to represent the interests 
of the United States of America. Seth Waxman did that during the Clinton administration, which means, and as I would say, by and large, the United States of America is most interested in cases that are in the Supreme Court. They can they can intervene and jump in in, in suits that in the lower federal courts. But really, they are focusing on the Supreme Court because those are the cases that are of public importance and policy importance and legal consequence. And as I noted in the last episode, the United States, through its Solicitor General's office, has intervened in this Austin appeal. And they are going to appear at oral argument, and they're going to state their their interests. But uh, Seth Waxman did that for the United States. And so he's probably argued in front of the Supreme Court as much or more than any other advocate in the business right now. And he's an exceptional advocate. He's brilliant. And uh, I was just uh, going back through the oral argument in the Austin case in the Ninth Circuit as I was preparing for one of these episodes. And, and I was just, the more you hear him, the more you, the more you understand the issues, the more you realize how, how good he is. But um, he's going to be arguing the case for the NCAA. And that's big time firepower. So he's not he's not coming in thinking, oh well, the United States is a party to this lawsuit. Seth Waxman has been there and done that, so he's not going to be intimidated, and, and he knows exactly how they play the game, and he's going to play it extraordinarily well. And then you also have the addition to the team, and this happened in O'Bannon, of a boutique Washington firm that also has enormous political power. And the name of the firm is uh, Wilkinson Steckloff. It used to be Wilkinson Walsh. And uh, if the name Beth Wilkinson rings a bell, uh, you might have heard that name in a number of contexts because she is a heavy hitter in D.C. She's considered one of the best trial attorneys in in the game. But she also has this uh, talent for sort of navigating controversy and scandal. So there's a a little bit of a kind of a fixer element to, to her associations. And of course, she can't talk about that publicly, but just an exceptional legal talent. And, and she just knows how the game is played. So you want her on your team. You want all these people on your team. And you probably don't want to see them on the, on the opposing team. But um, Wilkinson has been associated with this case, uh, with the NCAA, I think, starting in O'Bannon. So this goes back to the O'Bannon trial. I'm not sure how active she was in that. And then, you know, in the appellate process, uh, Waxman takes over. But Wilkinson Walsh is on the, you know, Supreme Court pleadings. And so they're going to be there. I don't, I don't think she's going to argue. I think it's going to be Waxman. But she has, has had some interesting clients. So it was reported, and I believe this is probably accurate through mainstream media sources, that she represented Hillary Clinton in connection with her, her email server scandal. And then her name came up when Brett Kavanaugh was facing those surreal confirmation hearings in the Senate for the for his U.S. Supreme Court position. And uh, I don't recall her actually making an appearance at the witness table with him. I, I don't remember, but her, her name came up, and the the notion was that she was helping him out, at least advising him behind the scenes and how to you know how to shape his um, his narrative. And that was a tough job. I mean, that was just really a, a bizarre public spectacle. But um, but she made her chops really as a federal prosecutor, and she prosecuted Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing cases, and uh, she won. So, you know, long story short, the NCAA has, has this legal dream team assembled. And there's something I want to say about that because this is so important. The NCAA has spared no cost to defend its economic interests and to preserve the status quo and to, you know, ensconce this amateurism-based deference to its business model into federal judicial thinking and decision-making. And that money, the money that pays 
Skadden Arps fees, that pays Seth Waxman's fees, that pays Beth Wilkinson's fees, is generated exclusively by high-level Division I men's basketball players because the NCAA only gets basketball money, and we've talked about that. And the Division I men's basketball product has the highest concentration of African-Americans of any other NCAA product in any sport in any division. So, and I've talked about this regressive transfer of wealth from black laborers to white interests. This is a perfect example of that because all of the fees of these exceptionally uh, prestigious, powerful, and very expensive lawyers are being paid largely by the labors of the very people who who are kind of on the receiving end of the NCAA's war against revenue-producing athletes. So in a very direct way, I think, these athletes are funding the opposing army's weapons, and those weapons are being used against them. And I think that's just unconscionable, and nobody's talking about the litigation campaign, the litigation prong of the NCAA's quest for the Iron Throne on those terms, in that that context. It's an equity-based context. But I just wanted to, you know, to point that out. And I'm not saying that the athletes' lawyers are chopped liver. They've had exceptional representation. And Jeffrey Kessler, who I think is going to argue the case for the athletes, is a brilliant advocate as well. But here's here's an important difference. So Kessler and then before him, Michael Housefield, who represented the athletes in O'Bannon, they were kind of one and done. I mean, Housefield was involved in this McCants case as well. But really, you know, O'Bannon was was his baby, and then Austin is, is Kessler's baby. And they're kind of boutique antitrust firms. Again, you know, just exceptional advocate. But they're looking at their one case and kind of navigating within that one case, getting to know it very well and, and all that. But the NCAA's legal uh, team and their legal interests have been groomed over decades, and they've had the same people working on them. So they're way ahead of the game in terms of using antitrust litigation in their broader strategy and their business model, and this effort to eliminate external threats to the regulatory model. So they're really not on equal footing in that respect. And I I think that's important, and it'll be interesting to see how they kind of match up against each other. So Waxman and Kessler went head-to-head in the Ninth Circuit, and they, they couldn't be more different style realistically from an from an advocacy standpoint you know Kessler's kind of has this like you know Bronx uh, brawler kind of approach and I, I love it I mean it's just a, very good but you know Waxman's very polished he's very smooth he's very precise and there it's, it's like Rocky and Apollo Creed you know it, it, it's a really interesting kind of matchup so I'm just from an advocacy standpoint I'm, I'm looking forward to that but I, I think we'll know pretty quickly in the oral argument the extent to which some of these principles of deference that I've just talked about are are present in the way that the justices are thinking about the case and how the advocates present the case. But, you know, to another way that, that deference to NCAA principles and NCAA amateurism has played out was in how the Ninth Circuit in O'Bannon, the majority, characterized amateurism and used amateurism when it was drawing this distinction between permissible education-related compensation and then impermissible non-educated related compensation that they thought would uh, violate amateurism principles and open the market and create you know catastrophe for college sports and I just want to kind of recap that in this rule of reason antitrust analysis 
amateurism was only relevant to the NCAA's pro-competitive justification in, in that analysis. So the athletes say NCAA is subject to antitrust scrutiny, court agrees. They say these compensation limits are anti-competitive, the court agrees. Then the burden shifts to the NCAA to say, well, we're, we have some pro-competitive justifications that put the anti-competitive behavior in, in context. And actually, it's not that anti-competitive. It's really pro-competitive. So they come in with amateurism at that step in the analysis. And they say, all right, amateurism is what consumers want. It's how the product is defined. It is essential to the business of big-time college sports to have amateurism protected as a pro-competitive justification. Because without it, the product dies. That's essentially their argument. And it's relevant only in that that commercial context. And the, and the touchstone there is consumer preference, consumer demand, consumer behavior. What's the impact of various iterations of amateurism or the absence of amateurism to consumer well-being and preference? And we're going to talk about that specifically in another episode, but that's kind of how amateurism is relevant. It's not really relevant as a normative freestanding independent principle. So it's in this market analysis, what consumers want, what they don't want. And there was all kinds of expert testimony on that point. And the court said, yes, I think there is a somewhat of a pro-competitive justification and interest uh, that the NCAA has in preserving this basic demarcation between professional sports and amateur sports. And then having identified that as legitimate. Then the court went to this third step of the analysis and where the court looked at whether there were less restrictive ways that the NCAA could protect its limited uh, interest in preserving amateurism. And that's where the court crafted this remedy, okay? So the district court, Claudia Wilkin, she, she gave him cost of attendance, uh, full cost of attendance scholarships, which bumped up the value of the, of the scholarship uh, between two and $6,000, depending on the school. Then she also gave him those $5,000 trust funds. So they, and that was nil compensation. That was name, image, and likeness compensation. And these trust funds were $5,000 per athlete per year, and they could access them when certain conditions were met including having received their degree. And then the Ninth Circuit gets the case after the, uh, actually both parties appeal to the Ninth Circuit. And then the Ninth Circuit, in, in looking through those three basic steps in the rule of reason antitrust analysis, they kind of do the same thing that the district court does. Antitrust scrutiny, check. Uh, anti-competitive compensation limits, yes, check. Amateurism as a pro-competitive justification, uh, a very small check, yes, but not outcome determinative. And and so then when they got to the third step, you know, whether there were less restrictive ways to protect this amateurism interest, the court then brought amateurism back around and, and made it relevant again. And really, they, they were kind of done with amateurism at the pro-competitive justification step. But the, the court brought this amateurism argument back around, not really in the context of consumer preference and behavior, but as a freestanding normative principle. And that was completely irrelevant to the antitrust analysis. And in resurrecting and then misapplying amateurism, the majority in in the O'Bannon decision in the Ninth Circuit. Remember, that was a split decision, a two-to-one decision. But the majority really confused the, the nature of the inquiry, the fundamental inquiry in antitrust law. And it was, 
you know, whether or not consumer interest was being protected and preserved, not whether amateurism itself was being protected and preserved. And here's the way that Judge Thomas put it. And he was the dissenting judge. And I don't know if I mentioned this uh, earlier or not, but he is also the chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. So he, you know, he is a smart guy and uh, he's top dog there. He also happened to sit on the O'Bannon, I mean, sorry, O'Bannon, the Austin panel. So he he saw uh, both cases. But here's what he said in O'Bannon about the majority's use of amateurism on the backside as a freestanding normative principle. The disagreement between my view and the majority view largely boils down to a difference in opinion as to the pro-competitive interests at stake. The majority characterizes our task at step three of the rule of reason as determining whether the alternative, once anti-competitive behavior has been found and a valid pro-competitive justification has been proffered, of allowing students to be paid nil compensation unrelated to their education expenses is virtually as effective in preserving amateurism as not allowing compensation. The conclus- this conclusion misstates our inquiry. Rather, we must determine whether allowing student-athletes to be compensated for their nil is virtually as effective in preserving popular demand for college sports as not allowing competi- compensation. In terms of antitrust analysis, the concept of amateurism is relevant only insofar as it relates to consumer interest. So, and in that uh, quote, Judge Thomas highlights and, and puts in italics amateurism as not allowing compensation and then popular demand for college sports as not allowing compensation. So he wants to make very clear that the majority basically dispensed with the central inquiry of antitrust law, and that's consumer interest and demand and consumer welfare. Uh, amateurism's value as a freestanding normative principle completely outside of the antitrust analysis. And that is just a testament to how powerful the amateurism indoctrination has become. And then in this lawsuit, these brilliant uh, jurists lost sight of the central inquiry of the antitrust analysis and kind of took the bait on the NCAA's Uh, characterization of amateurism's relevance in this antitrust analysis and really kind of turned the analysis upside down, which is why I think this O'Bannon decision is is so problematic for the U.S. Supreme Court and how it's going to rule. And we, we talked a lot about that in the last episode. So, so the point of this, uh, episode really is to help the uh, listeners understand that there are some powerful, powerful values-based dynamics that are underneath all of these ostensibly uh, sterile clinical antitrust analyses that have had enormous impact, I think, on the outcome of these lawsuits. And the athletes' interests simply haven't been advanced the way that I think the public's been led to believe. And that's due in large part to this built-in deference that powerful people and powerful institutions in America grant to the NCAA and its conceptualization of amateurism. Okay, so we're going to wrap this up. And then in the next episode, I'm going to talk about more about this antitrust immunity issue and how the NCAA and Power Five went about uh, crafting that 
through the Austin litigation, and, and actually that's going to take us back to abandon, but that's an important component of this case, and it's really important to understand how they've wrapped that issue up in a way that's very clever, and it is difficult to tease out. Okay, so with that, we'll close this thing out. Thank you so much for joining, and I look forward to having you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Oh, 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 oh,